The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. There we go. That's fun. You are multitasking over there, Bob. Good work. Uh, This is a great time to plug tech team if you guys want to help with that, because Bob obviously needs more hands over there. So, um, no, it's my honor to affirm to you, because we know Jesus who was crucified, died, was buried, but also rose that your sins are forgiven. As we were singing that last song um, and the refrain, holy, 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 holiness being a quality and character that is unique to who God is. I thought how in the scripture there are these times where you hear the word holy and it is connected with fire descending on the top of a mountain, smoke filling this temple in beautiful vision, and you also get holy sung by us in a very simple coffee shop. No fire, no smoke, And that doesn't mean God is any less holy or that our declaration is any less true. Uh, Oswald Chambers, who wrote Most First Highest, liked talking about what he called mountaintop experiences and how oftentimes we just give credit to the mountaintop experience where God shows up in fire or smoke, but so much of our lives are lived in this valley where we are acknowledging the truth of who God is and it's not followed by a flashy feeling or you know, the, the songbird singing on our shoulder. It is simply <laughs> accompanied by the truth that who God says he is, he is. And we can rely on him. So with that, let me pray for us and we will dig into God's word together. God, we do come to you really simply this morning. We come to you Like Steve was saying, we come to you as us, unglamorous, knowing who we are better than the person next to us, even our spouse, or the person we came with, whoever it is, even better than they know us. God, you know us. You know who we are. And we pray this morning that you will open the eyes of our hearts. You will help us to see you live amazed by you, to worship you, to love you. God, our hearts aren't open wide enough to even begin to appreciate your word and your truth. So God, I pray by your spirit, you'll give us the strength to see, comprehend, and love you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We are in a sermon series called Talking to God, A History of Prayer, and today the title is Gideon, Imperfect People Praying. An imperfect prayer is what we get to look at today. This is our introduction. Lord, teach us to pray. This request from Jesus' disciples not only expressed their personal desire, but their impression of Jesus' life and ministry. Every time you come on a Sunday morning here to the refuge, I hope you leave seeing Jesus in some way, even when we're in the Old Testament, because Jesus' fingerprints are all over the Bible. Jesus, teach us to pray. His life was a praying life. The intimacy and understanding between Jesus and the Father is available to every person 
who desires to know God. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, um, I'm going to start my sermon today talking about something uncomfortable, and that is 2020. Are we ready yet to talk about 2020? We haven't talked a lot about it. And instead of talking about it in we, which I usually do when I'm preaching, I say we and try to talk about collective impressions or emotions or thoughts, I'm going to talk about me and maybe you'll relate with some of this. Although I had fewer plans in 2020 and spent significantly more time at home, which was delightful because the work I get to do with Coffee O and, and The Refuge, oftentimes I'd have a lot of things going on in the afternoon, and, and there wasn't that. I got to spend way more time at home getting ready for little Elliot to come, but that did not make it more restful of a year. 2020 was a restless year. We were often alarmed. I was often angry. I heard pain speak with a megaphone. I saw people marching in streets and protesting at government buildings, which happened even before 2021, which the big, big one happened. I saw sadness openly shared and anger bear its frenzied sharp teeth. I grappled with history and the shadow that it still casts over these present moments. Last year, I often felt miserable, sick to my stomach at what I saw, heard on the news and in my community. Sometimes, I also felt pretty good about myself. After I read something that was especially horrible, I became angry, and it felt good to be offended after a while. It even felt better to share that offense with other people. Being offended felt like a release valve when I got to share my own dis-ease with the way the world was and the way leaders ran the world. So this is the question. How do I or we differentiate between our own anger, our own impressions, and God's anger and God's impressions? How do I differentiate between God's righteousness and my self-righteousness? The answer is, I do this very imperfectly. I do it clumsily, and I often do it wrong. Now, there's a story differentiating between God's righteousness and our self-righteousness, a parable Jesus tells, and it's that of a tax collector. If, you're, if you've read the stories of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, this is a popular one because uh, it shares how, how even those who feel farthest away from God can come to God. And the stories of this tax collector who is a person that basically felt like the most rejected person of his people. And he comes to the temple, a place where he's not typically welcome. And he, so the, the church of their day, right? And he, he is standing there crying out to God, God, notice me. God, can I even be here with you? And he's just humbled. God, notice me a sinner. And in the corner, there's a Pharisee, which is basically the pastors of his day. And, and the pastor says, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. And 
Jesus says, who went away justified? Who went away sinless before God? And it was the tax collector. Well, let me share a parable that I wrote with you in preparation for this sermon. It goes something like this. There once was a Pharisee on his way home, and he was lost in thought. This Pharisee was reciting in his mind the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, which he had first memorized when he was a young boy. He had just arrived at the part in the text where God declares uh, himself as I am that I am. The Pharisee worshipped God who was, who is, and who was to come. The next thing he knew, the Pharisee became aware that he was in unfamiliar surroundings. In his concentration, he had lost his way. Noticing a nearby door, he knocked to ask directions. The door was opened and inside was a group of the way. That's what early Christians were known as. They were gathered to pray. Their eyes nervously watched as the Pharisee was given directions. When he left, all the hearts in the room uttered the same silent prayer, thank you, Father, that I am not a Pharisee like that man. It's so easy for us to, you know, we relate with the tax collector. You know, we were like, man, if I was living in Jerusalem and Israel at the time, I would be that guy. I think Jesus would tell a parable like this today. (laughs) He would tell tell a parable of people gathered to pray and say, thank you that I'm not that person. Who is that person in your life? And it was very easy in 2020 to find that person. To find that person that appeared less righteous than we did. And that's really the story of Gideon. Gideon is a very imperfect character. Gideon is a very, very imperfect man. And so the question, big question we're going to ask today is, does God only answer the prayers of the righteous? And our big idea is God only listens to imperfect prayers. Now, naturally, the caveat is Jesus. He prayed pretty well. But even if you hear Jesus' prayers, he learned and grew in his praying. And dare I say, maybe prayed imperfect prayers. Acceptable prayers, but prayers that we're learning, right? Father, if it's possible, take this cup for me, right? He learned and grew in stature as a part of his praying. So today as we look at the story of Gideon, we looked at an imperfect prayer. And I think in this, don't necessarily get a model for how to pray as much as we get permission to pray as we are. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 6 through 8. And I, you'll be able to follow along if you have your Bibles. I'm going to, in many ways, kind of just tell the story of Gideon. Um, because there is a lot of text here. Um, there is a cycle, if you go through the book of Judges, that repeats, I think, about seven times. And it is a sad <laughs> cycle that we oftentimes see repeated in our world and in our lives. Uh, and you see this right here in the beginning. It starts out, uh, Judges 6 Verse 1, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that starts, that's kind of the beginning of the cycle over and over and over again. Israel's had an experience where God draws them to himself and then Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. And because of that, they get handed over to their enemies. Really what happens is his shelter, his shield of protection is taken off and they, they experience oppression like they have not felt when, when they are living in obedience. And then they cry out to the Lord. Verse 6, it says this. 
It says Midian impoverished, Midian, uh, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So they cry out to the Lord and then God sends a prophet to kind of review the, the history of Israel with them. And I'm aware, I was telling Jake when we were talking about sermons the other day, I was like, you know, a lot of times preaching's hard because people don't like history and so much of what we talk about is, is history. And God's constantly going, remember, remember, remember. And that's what he does in verses seven to 10. He says, uh, the prophet comes, he says, this is what the Lord, the God said, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the Egyptians. And he goes on, he goes, this is what I have done. And as the cycle continues... God raises up a judge, hence the name the book of Judges. And these judges, imperfect people as they were, led Israel. And Gideon is <laughs> quite the special one. We get to know Gideon along the way as someone who is raised in a home in Israel, in a, in a tribe called Manasseh. Manasseh doesn't get a lot of airtime in the Bible. Very insignificant tribe, just talking in terms of how much we hear about Manasseh. They were actually a very big tribe. But he we grew up and he said this, what he says is he says, the clan, my clan is the weakest in all of Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. That's who Gideon is. He goes, you know, my clan is teensy-weensy. And he goes, and me, I am like, I mean, we don't even know how old he is when, when God comes to speak to him. But when God comes to speak to him, chapter 6, verse 12, the angel of the Lord appears and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior of the smallest clan and the least of all that clan. And let me tell you, Gideon does not impress in any way. That's why if, if you see the notes that, that are published there for this, it is a mightyish warrior. I, I have a very hard time calling Gideon a mighty warrior. He's more of a mightyish warrior because immediately when God says that, and it's funny, when you read the Bible, and, and I challenge you to do this, if you're reading with a certain voice, go back and read with a different voice. So I want to read Gideon as this kind of sniffling little boy, and maybe he was, but as I listened to it in, um, you know, I listen to the Bible in audio, I read it, and I try listening to the section I'm going to preach, audio, just so I get, you know, someone else's voice, <laughs> maybe a less critical one that's reading in my ear. And so I think Gideon really is expressing humility, and I think that's why God chooses him. We don't get a lot of, like, this is what, because God just says mighty warrior, and he obviously is not that. God is speaking something over him rather than seeing something in him here. And so Gideon starts and humbly says, pardon me, Lord. <laughs> you can just hear it in his voice. Um, so <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and so if you read ESV, it's nice. He goes, please will you, my Lord. It's this very humble. So pardon me, Lord, but if the Lord is with us, then why has this happened? It's this honest questioning. You don't have Gideon go, here I am, right? Which is kind of the, the comic book character we want to see is, the, is this guy who's like very self-confident already, but he has none of that. This mighty warrior has no self-confidence at all. 
pardon me, Lord, and he expresses the heart of Israel, this cry that's come up. Why, Lord, have you done this to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors have been told about? Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. And then 14 says, the Lord turned to him and says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? And, and if you remember the sermon I preached not too long ago about Moses, remember God said this to Moses, but Moses didn't feel sent after this was told to him. Because after God told that to Moses, Moses said what? He goes, well, if you don't go, I'm not going. And so I think the impression that Gideon and Moses got was, well, you can send me, but I still feel very helpless and alone. I feel like me, who's the smallest clan and the smallest person in that clan, all I know is me. And when you say the strength you have, that is teensy-weensy, right? <laughs> I don't feel like a mighty warrior. I don't feel like anything. And so Gideon goes, and he goes to his very pagan home. I mean, pagan in every sense of the way. He, he goes back to his home, and um, after the angel of the Lord uh, offers, he offers a sacrifice, the angel of the Lord receives his sacrifice, but he goes to his home and the first kind of test he goes through is that God says, go back and I want you to tear down all the idols that your, your family has, that your clan has. And so he goes back and he, he tears down all the Asherah poles, idols to Baal, all these things. But he goes at night because he's scared. Literally, he says he is afraid of his family. If you read in verse 27, this is our mighty warrior going at night to do what God's asked him to do because he's scared of his family. Now, I think most of us are. That's fair, right? Most of us would probably be scared to go rip down the Asherah poles of our family. Um, Whatever Asherah poles your family might have, we all have things that our families cherish God says, go rip that down. And so he goes in the middle of the night and does this. And, and the town has to figure out who has done this. And the town comes out, and, and he is so scared that his dad has to come out and give defense for him. Okay, and then we get to this part where Gideon, after seeing all this happen, offers a prayer that is famous. And if you ever are around a Christian, and they talk about putting out the fleece, which is a real weird thing to say. <laughs> You're like, like my Patagonia? Are you just going to throw that outside at night? You know, um, This is the story they're talking about. He takes you know, some of the, the wool of the lamb, however they've concocted that up, and he goes, hey, I'm going to put this out at night, God, if you are still with me. After God's done everything he's already done, he goes, I'm going to put this out at night. Uh, look to the threshold. He goes, and if there is dew on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I know you will save me. This is kind of a weird. It's a, the offering of the fleece. When people say that in in kind of Christian circles, what they're saying is they're gonna they're gonna kind of put out something. If God, you know, I'm gonna put out pancakes, and if the birds eat them, you know, but not the strawberries, then. God wants me to go to China. That's the sort of thing we do, right? Because it's like God's already called us. We're like, I just need to make sure. And it's very frustrating to read, but we find this all in our hearts. Now, God does what Gideon asked. What he does next is Gideon literally says, don't be angry with me, but let me try this one more time. If the fleece is wet, but the ground is dry. 
And God is patient. That's why our first point is simply mightiest warrior, patient God. That's who we meet here. An imperfect, very, very, very imperfect prayer. And yet a God who has decided to save his people through this mightiest warrior. Now the story gets better. Because it says the spirit of God fills Gideon. Now, and turns him into this mighty warrior. God goes with Gideon. And the tribes, multiple tribes respond. And they have a lot of people come out. Now, they have a lot of people come out to defend Israel. About 32,000 people. Now, that's a lot of people. But it's, it still doesn't feel like a lot, maybe, when you're going up against a, a group of people that are, are called numberless as the sand on the seashore. And so that's the Midianites and their posse. And then you have the Israelites and there's about 32,000. But still, let me tell you what, if you are rolling with 32,000 people at your back, you still feel pretty awesome, right? Like you're still feeling pretty good. You're like, the odds are against us, but we look awesome. And so God says, that is too many people for me to, to deliver Israel. And so he goes, he comes to, it's, it's hilarious. He goes, so I want you to come to the army and announce, this is seven, verse three, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave. So 22,000 men leave, right? He comes to the army and it's like, hey, if you're scared of dying, you can go home. And so 22,000 people are like, I don't want to die. And so they go home and you have 10,000 people. Now, you feel less confident. But when you're standing there, 32,000 people and 10,000 people kind of look alike, okay? So you still feel okay with 10,000 people. And so God says, too many people. And so he goes, I want you to bring them all down to the river and they're all gonna drink water. And the people who just go down and start licking up water, this is literally in the Bible, Start licking up water like a dog. He goes, those people you can send home. They don't know how to drink water, okay? And he goes, and the rest of the people who are, are scooping up the water and drinking it, you can keep those people. And guess how many people had proper water drinking etiquette? Just about 300 people. They did not have good water drinking etiquette in Israel at the time. So, so you have about 300 people that are left. Now, 300 people... Not a lot of people. Okay, we have about 100 chairs set up in here. So imagine just two more of these, right? And then you're talking that against numberless is the sand on the seashore. This is the way God works with imperfect prayers. He goes, you know what? Your, your prayer probably feels more confident than it should because your trust is getting put in the wrong place. There's a little bit of vulnerability. There's a lot of bit of fear that happens in God-honoring prayer. So, 300 people are at Gideon's back and God comes to him and he says this. This is chapter seven, verse 10. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp and he explains what to do. He goes down to the camp and he listens into a tent, and in that tent there are two Midianites who are more afraid of Israel than Israel is of Midian. And so Gideon has confidence, goes back, and they attack, and they're given the victory. Small army, big God. 
That's what can happen when we pray imperfectly. Now, the end of the story is tragic. And that's at the end of chapter 8. And you get at the end of this cycle of rebellion, repentance, redemption, and then return. And the return isn't a return to God. It's a return to rebellion. Rebellion, redemption, rebellion, repentance, redemption, and then return. And at the end, they return again. And the reason is Israel, who's had all this this incredible vision of who God is, the power of who God is, the God, the big God in the small army, the patient God in the mightyish man. Israel, who's seen this, thinks this. There must be something special in Gideon. Now, this is really a really important point because we do this all the time. Well, that person must be really special. You know, I know this is a pastor. Well, I like that sermon. Daniel just must be a really great guy. There's obviously the reverse also. I hated that sermon, so that guy must really suck, right? But people, when they are impressed, when they are impressed with something or someone and they get enamored, they go, they must just be better. And that's why it's so helpful for us to know that God listens not to perfect prayers or pray, prayers or prayers, but God listens to the imperfect ones. And so when we see God show up and we see God deliver and we see forgiveness enrapture our hearts, we don't become impressed with the wrong thing, which becomes self-righteousness or self-praise or self-esteem. But our fear of God grows because we acknowledge the fact we couldn't have done it. We only had 300 people. I couldn't have done it. Now, what this looked like last year for us is I think as a people, as a nation, individuals, we really wanted to put our trust in people. You know? One way or another, whether it's in history or in the modern times, we want to go, well, that person's going to, you know, they're a little right, they're all right. And I think it's really important for us as people to be able to acknowledge that God uses, God uses imperfect people. You're going to see people that you're like, that guy is a scumbag. That doesn't mean God can't use that person. You're going to see sometimes people that you're like, man, they are so good. And you're going to see them at times act really not good. We will constantly be let down if we're looking for perfection in people or we're waiting to pray perfect prayers. There are two kinds of prayers. There's the prayer of the sinner and there's the prayer of the saint. Let me describe those to you. The prayer of the sinner A sinner being someone who comes to God as an enemy. Doesn't mean God doesn't have grace on his enemies. Doesn't mean God doesn't love his enemies, but they come to God as an enemy. And oftentimes, culturally, we like to imagine that we come to God when we are apart from him, when we have not committed ourselves to him. He will be our God and we will be his people. We think we come on equal terms. We think we can come sort of as a friend. We can have tea and crumpets with God and we can, pick, can compare ideas with him. 
And maybe he can come to see our reasoning and we can come to see his and it will be all good in the end. Well, God isn't interested in such casual acquaintances. Now, if this is hard to understand, (laughs) I just want to ask a simple question. Have you ever met somebody who doesn't honor your time? You know, you're, you're, you're like, thank you, Megan. You know, you're like doing something. This happened to me in Target the other day. I was telling Hannah, I was like in Target and I was shopping and you know, Elliot, I have like a, I have like a seven minute window, you know, in a store. And, and this person was talking to me and they just kept talking to me. And you know, I wouldn't mind talking to that person. I got a seven minute window, you know? And so this person, and, and my child is like getting visibly upset and they're not realizing that, Right. And so they're just not honoring the situation, you know? And they just keep talking. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, yeah, okay. You know, and I'm like, you're just doing the thing where you're like, okay, and your shoulder starts going like this, you know? And just thinking maybe they'll get that. You know, you're trying to like, imagine God. When we don't honor him, we don't honor who he is. It isn't this casual God's like, oh, it's cool. Now, God who is holy, it matters when he is not being honored. That's why we come to him as a saint or a sinner, as an enemy or as a child. And that is what the saint comes to him as. The saint comes to God as a child. Now, the question for both is this. My question for the sinner is this. Do you know that there is no peace between you and God? Now, the sinner wants to understand, and I know we hate using the word sinner in our culture today. The Bible uses it, and so it's better that we explain it than we just go, it doesn't make me feel good, right? Like, the way the Bible uses that word is just saying these are people who haven't become reconciled to God. They're still living at odds with God. There's still a chasm between them and their relationship with God. That's simply what it means. Now, for the sinner, it's important that they know that they don't have peace with God. They can talk about God or they can wax eloquent or intellectually think about him all day long because we've been given so many false assurances that God doesn't have thoughts, preferences, desires, will, as if he doesn't have a rightness to him, a righteousness. But God is not on your side and he's not on my side. He's on his side and that is what holiness means. When you're like, oh, I came to this refuge church and they just think they're better. No, I don't think I I am. God is, you and me are here. God is here. And unless we're reconciled to him, we all are sinners. The question for the saint is this. Do you know that you have been accepted perfectly because of Jesus, not because you're a good person? You've been accepted perfectly but you are not a perfect child. You are a child, and like any child that lives in that tension of a relationship with their parents, that they're learning obedience, that is who we are. And so it's important as saints that we drop the act as if we are better than other people, because we're not. Often to the contrary, we are those stuck up kids that are like, look at me. You know, and and it's like, no, 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 no. We are not better by any means. We are those who have been accepted because we've simply come and have grieved our sin. We have wept over. That's where Jesus, the whole, his whole ministry launches on the statement, blessed, happy are 
the poor in spirit. Not happy are those who realize that they've got a pretty special soul, but happy are those that realize their soul is impoverished. And so what? Then happy are those who weep over it. Right? That, is, that is the journey towards the kingdom, is being people who see that they are so far away from God, that they are so in need of God, not those who are like, well, I feel like I'm one of the chosen. No, it's those who realize their need for him. To say we are perfected in Jesus, that his righteousness is ours, that God sees us as 100% forgiven does not mean that we now only do perfect things. On the contrary, we become more aware of how deeply flawed we are because we're closer to him who is perfect. And we realize how precious and how costly the forgiveness we have received truly is. That week after week, as Steve was saying, we do things that grieve God, and yet he still greatly loves us. That is imperfect prayer. We who come to him again and again and again and say, can I come back into your lap and sit for a while? And he says, come, my child. To the sinner, I encourage this imperfect prayer. Make me your own. That is the request of the son who comes back to the father in the prodigal son story. Can I be yours? To the saint, the prayer is this. Imperfect as it is, make me like you because I am not like you as much as I want to be. Pray with me. Father, in your mercy, your grace, I pray that you will help us be honest in our prayers. Take an honest assessment of our lives. Not put on an act as if we deserve your forgiveness, but revel in the joy that we are forgiven because of the great cost to your son. Thank you for making that forgiveness so available to us. And that every day, every time we are in need, we can come to you humbly and ask. Thank you that your heart towards us is love. You rejoice over us. Thank you for that relationship that isn't momentary, isn't at risk of being broken for those who come humbly to you. It's eternal. So good. We praise you. Amen. We're going to take communion together as a church which celebrates the fact that we're forgiven. We celebrate by remembering the night Jesus was betrayed. And it always takes us to that moment before the cross. I think that's one of the things that's so special about communion. Communion takes us to before the cross when I think we kind of, oftentimes we find ourselves still wondering, is this for me? Can this, is this too good to be true? When we take it, we're acknowledging the fact that the body of Christ was broken and it was broken for us. And when we dip it or we take it, the juice or the wine with it, 
we are acknowledging that a new covenant was made by his blood, that new covenant, which is the forgiveness of sins. In him, we are perfected in Christ. Not that we act perfectly all the time, but that God sees us as perfected in Jesus, that he holds nothing against us, that we are loved in him. So I invite you to take that communion, which is at the back as we sing. You can just kind of head back there, and if you um, have confessed your sins and you received the forgiveness, take communion with us. Love you guys.